Advent and Christmas, this is, you know, we look forward to it all year long. Uh, during Advent, we look forward to his birth. And in case you haven't been aware of this, I kind of like to make sure we're all on the same page here. And then on Christmas, we celebrate his arrival, his birth. Um, and, and we marvel at, at what he's done for us, what he's done that we did not expect and we could not give for ourselves, he covered. And it's just an, an amazing, and, and it, it leads to right, joyful joyful expectations. Um, but this morning, the peace candle, um, spent a lot of time thought, t- thinking about the peace candle. And, and I, you know, during Christmas, several of my favorite songs, you know, have that theme peace, right? And it's only during Christmas and it, it, it just moves me every, every year. You know, there's about four or five songs that, that talk about peace on earth. Um, and, and I, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Politicians, diplomats, Christians, people for since we began, I guess. What will it take to realize peace on earth? That's, that's been the goal since the beginning, right? Peace on earth. And then we all get kind of selfish and arrogant and prideful and we just, we just kind of... We wreck things, <laughs> wreck it for everybody else in our self-centeredness. My question this morning, when will groups of image bearers of God stop claiming supremacy over other groups of God's image bearers? So that's what we've got in this world today. We've got groups of believers, groups of unbelievers, all sorts of groups claiming supremacy over other people groups, other faith groups. And it just, it just divides us and it does not bring peace. Right? It brings the opposite. It brings division. And again, some believe that the task is too great, right? That sin is too great, that God's just going to have to resort to, you know, at the last minute, he's going to swoop down, scoop us all up, haul us off, and torch this place. And everything left and everybody left. Boom, bam, baby, peace on earth. But I don't believe that it's going to be accomplished through something as catastrophic as torching the place. I... I there's an opinion out there, and there's a, an interpretation, and, and if you believe that, that's fine. I don't lean into that. I'll just let you know, and I'm going to be preaching from a different perspective this morning because that plan, torching the place, it just doesn't jive with what Jesus said was God's plan, that thy will be done, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And that doesn't seem to mix well with the torching plan. It just, I'm having a hard time reconciling those two things. It seems to me it's going to be one or the other, but again, I'm not, I'm not claiming that I know the end. I got some opinions. Pastors have opinions. The plan then, the way I see it is to bring heaven to earth, to reunite heaven and earth rather than torching the place and taking whatever's left off to heaven. Now, just kind of think through this. If you're a believer with the torch plan, I'm just going to call it the torch plan. If you're a believer or and or you have experienced in your lifetime, you're one of the, the haves, right? You're not one of the have nots, right? So if you've experienced Christ and you have, you have, right? And if you're in this room, you have, just in case you were wondering, you have. Um, there's a strange appeal, uh, appeal to the torching plan, 
Right? It, it's kind of odd, it's kind of perverted, but it, it, it's, it's there. Um, right? Nothing more is needed from you, right? You said your prayer, you got your ticket, you're going to heaven, and whatever happens behind you, that's, that's not your concern, right? You said the prayer. Besides in heaven, right, you get everything back. It's kind of like when you play your country records backwards, right? You get your dog back, get your truck back, you get your girl back. In the Western world, we believe that when we get to heaven, everybody's going to be super, super rich. We, we latch on to that. I want to share this morning, that's a very North American, Western European idea. The rest of the world does not see it that way. And I'm going to kind of get into that just a little bit this morning. See, we latch on to the mansions and the streets of gold, and that's very, very much a part of our culture, our autonomous culture, where each one of us achieves and accumulates as much as we can, and it's okay. That, that's just part of who we are as North Americans, and we, we need to be okay with that. We need, need to accept it and deal with it from there. But if you're an unbeliever, and or you are one of the have-nots, which is not many people in this room, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. It's the rest of the world. Torch in the place is your worst nightmare, right? You never got a chance to have, and now you never will. Right? Because you're not one of the accepted ones. You're one of them. But with the other plan, reuniting heaven and earth, you got some different options. As a believer, and this is, this is going to kind of come as a surprise, thy kingdom come as a believer and as, as somebody who haves, right? That's me, that's you, that's us. What I'm going to read to you this morning is going to throw a little bit of uncertainty into your, 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 game, your end of life game plan, your end of, your end of temporal life and your eternal plan. I, I'm just going to put a little wrinkle into it. I'm just going to ask us to just step back, pause, hesitate just a little bit and rethink the way we've been thinking what's coming for us right in heaven. So if you're a believer, thy kingdom come, a little bit of uncertainty involved in that. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you that this morning. As a non-believer, and you have had not, you're one of those people who just struggled your whole life and you never had what everybody else had. Well, thy kingdom come turns out to be the best news of your life. It is fantastic news. And again, you're looking at me going, wait, well, that doesn't make sense, an unbeliever. And thy kingdom come is a fantastic mix. And it, it truly is, though. Let, let, me, let me explain. And, and, and by the way, I'm... Maybe you've noticed I'm, I'm, I'm mashing together, conflating two ideas, money and faith, right? I've mentioned several times if you're a believer or you have or if you're a non-believer and a not have. The fact of the matter is in our world, those two, and I wrongly, those two get put together, right? Health and wealth are seen as signs of God's blessings, and they warrant a warm welcome in your home, in your church, in your business, right? But if you're not healthy and if you're not wealthy, Right? We get this idea, and it's not just here. It's kind of worldwide. Well, then God must not be happy with you. And I don't want you in my house if God's not happy with you. Because if there's going to be a bolt, I don't want to be around. Go visit my neighbor. I don't like him anyway. Right? I'm kidding. I love my neighbor. He's probably watching. <laughs> um, so money and faith, right? If you're wealthy, God's happy. You're, you're, you're welcome. Please come. But if you're poor... God must not be happy with you. Stay away. So this morning, how and why might the good news be bad news for believers? It's like, wait, what? Time out? 
Hang with me a little bit here. And how and why might the good news actually be fantastically good news for unbelievers, right, and the have-nots of the world? Our answers come from Luke chapter 1 and 2 we're going to look at this morning. Um, in these two chapters, we have two narratives involving two separate families. We have John the Baptist and his mom and pop, and we have Jesus of Nazareth and his parents. And in between, you know, the first half of these two narratives, we, we have their, their prophecies. We have prophecy of John the Baptist, and we have the prophecy of Jesus in, in chapter 1. And then at the end of chapter 1, we have John actually being born. And the beginning of chapter 2, we got Jesus being born, and that's Probably we're going to be reading this coming weekend, so I'm not going to touch that. I'll let David have that passage in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, right in between the prophecies about the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus and their actual births, we have this sweet little piece of Scripture. Not very long, because it's right in the middle of these two, but it is a powerful piece of Scripture tucked neatly between the prophecies and the actual births. This morning we're going to look at this passage in this passage, there is a poem, a song. It's called the Magnificat. Mary visits Elizabeth in the hill country. And on that visit, she sings a song of praise to God, and it's called the Magnificat. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but in many parts of the world, it's illegal to read that song. Right? You will be put in jail if you read this song in public. Read the rest of the Bible to your heart's content, but don't read this one. Because contained in her little poem and her song of praise to God were the seeds, right, that were planted in the hearts of every person in this world that haves and maybe has inadvertently or on purpose not allowed other people to have, right? This song puts them on notice, right? If you're a powerful government or if you're a powerful religious figure and you have been misusing your power, her song is going to wreck you. <laughs> It's, it's just going to wreck you. Revolutionaries from around the world for over 2,000 years have turned to this poem for inspiration and courage to topple governments and powers that enslave them. Contained in the Magnificat is the reason that King Herod, in chapter, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, right? the idea contained in that poem is what led him to massacre the two-year-olds in Bethlehem, right? the massacre of the innocents. Herod was afraid of what this poem implied. He was deathly afraid, as have all powerful governments around the world, and that's why they've outlawed the reading of the Magnificat. And that includes powers like Herod, the Caesars, the Pharisees, Sadducees, powerful people, right? But before we get to the actual song, we find that Luke has already been turning up the heat. He's been turning up, turning the screws, turning up the heat on rich and powerful people, right? From the very beginning of his gospel, right? He, he's he's going to kind of let it drip. He's going to let it drip. And then, he, then in the palm, right, it's going to be a full blast. Before even Mary speaks, Luke is making his point. Listen to this. This is, this is from verse 31 and 233 in chapter 1. Um, and, and it actually takes place during Mary's Gabriel prophesying to Mary that she's going to give birth. So it's not the passage that we're going to look at this morning, but I need to start there. Part of the prophecy from the angel Gabriel to Mary said this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High or the Son of God, different translations. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. See, Luke knows that his readers are currently suffering under lousy, evil Caesars, right? Some of them were worse than others. Some of them were horrific. Some of them were, eh, you know, they, they weren't all that bad, but they, they, had, a, they had a weird culture idea um, in, in their Caesardom. Uh, a favorite title of the Caesars was, guess what? Son of God, Son of the Most High. So by positioning his narratives of Jesus and John smack dab in the middle of this political intrigue of the day, Luke is putting the rich and the powerful on notice right out of the chute. Because the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, isn't Caesar. It's going to be a baby boy born to a teenage commoner, a poor poor girl from a lousy part of the country. If you were part of machines, the machine of Rome, which many people were, including people in the church, the Jewish church, Luke is putting you on notice that you're on the losing side. Even if you are a believer, if you are using the tools of Rome, power and coercion, anything like that, you are on the losing side of history. Whatever God is doing, he's not doing it through the normal channels of power, the normal ways that the people expect things to happen, right? Through the privilege, through the royalty. I'm going to pick up again in verse 39. Listen to this. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town, just a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, I love, just, it's just a packed sentence, right? Again, Luke addresses the unusual, surprising ways and means that God is clearly choosing to use. Rather than taking place in the temple at Jerusalem, right? The temporal and eternal place of power for the Jewish people. God instead chooses to use a backwater town so inconsequential, he doesn't even give it a name. I'm not even sure if he knows the name of the place. It's just where Zechariah lived. It's, it's a nowhere, right? In the hill country where hill people live. And you just get the feeling of, you know, hick, right? Luke's doing this on purpose. I need you to know that. He's, he's making a statement just in the way he's creating or, or, or recording this narrative. Here's another reminder from Luke. Zechariah and Elizabeth... They were both from priestly families, right? They were somebodies in the big scheme of things. They knew it and everybody else knew it. But Mary was literally a nobody. I had a poor commoner whose only connection to greatness was through her husband, Joseph, right? He had the genes, not her. So she married well. Good job, Mary. And during the visit, the, the obvious discrepancies between the two become even greater. They, they really get accentuated. Listen to this, verse 41, 42. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she explained, exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you, were, you will bear. If you were brought up Catholic, this is Hail Mary, right? This is the Latin translation. That would have been the first words in, in your Latin translations, Hail Mary. 
That was just a freebie. It has nothing to do with my message. But compare for a moment Elizabeth and Zachariah, right? Faithful servants, right? They, they, they are a pedigree, right? They're, they're literally Jewish royalty because they are priests of the tribe of Levi. I mean, they are somebody. And Mary and Joseph, they got rumors of infidelity surrounding them. And so you can see a young Mary and an older Elizabeth, who under normal circumstances would have the right to command greater respect. And you, can, you feel the tension in this little meeting between these two ladies, a very young, poor commoner and an older woman who knows her place in society, and it's a good place in society. Verses 43 through 45, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord, she just admits it right there, says it, not a problem, just, just says that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Several things to notice here. Number one, unlike the twins Esau and Jacob, right? They did not do well with sharing. They did not do well with God saying, you're going to be over you. Neither one of them took that very well. And it's almost like Luke is kind of drawing a comparison here. Elizabeth and Mary had no issues. They did not play out the Esau-Jacob division, right? Elizabeth was just beautiful about everything. The child of royalty will serve the child of a commoner. And Elizabeth was totally okay with it because that's God's plan and she loves God's plan, right? That, that's just the way it's going to be. Second thing, remember Gabriel's words of prophecy to Elizabeth from verse 15. You need to check that out. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he is even born. Check that out. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. This is a prenatal prophet speaking from the womb and announcing the advent of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And again, that's not really part of my message, but I just found that amazing. Here's the third thing I want you to notice here. The entire narrative involves two women. It doesn't involve any man of substance, right? I, I, you're catching this. You're catching what Luke is trying to do here, right? The husbands, they're in this narrative, in these two chapters, they're, they're unconsequential, right? Zechariah, he, he doesn't even believe. And Joseph, if you look at it real hard and close, he's kind of unnecessary. At this early stage, right, before he needs to raise the boy, He's just kind of scenery. The men are just scenery. That's weird. That's odd. And to readers of Luke, even readers to this day, they read this, and I don't think they catch it, that God has decided to do amazing things, not through the normal powers, channels of power, usually involve men. One little tidbit after another, Luke is signaling that in Christ Jesus, all social categories, all social relationships are being redefined, are being radically flipped upside down, right? If you've been on the top in any of these categories that I've been discussing, and in your mind, you might have come up with a few of your own, you need to be nervous. You need to be, be aware. And if you've been on the bottom of any all of these categories and people just piled on top of you and treated you like dirt. Your time, your time is coming. In fact, your time came on Christmas Day. 
And then we have the Magnificat. Starts in verse 46. Listen to this. And Mary said, my, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. You notice the very, this is very personal, the first half of her song, incredibly personal. Holy is his name. See, Mary recognizes what God is about to do by the way he's going about doing it. Right? God had chosen her a nobody. Therefore, in Mary's mind, the nobodies are about to be lifted up. This is amazing news for Mary. Verse 50 and 51. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. And again, once again, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the, the verb tense, the aorist verb tense. It's like everything has already been accomplished, right? She's describing something that's in the future, but it's already been accomplished in the future. The oppression of the poor and the marginalized has already been overcome simply because God chose her. And she recognized that she's the sign of what God is about to do, right? She's the, the chef tasting the recipe before it goes out. She's the proof in the pudding. Therefore, she can say, he has already scattered the proud simply by choosing me. And then the part that makes powerful people nervous, nervous enough to ban its public reading, even if they didn't understand what Mary was clearly implying right there. And, and this is the part that it makes me hesitate. It made me think, all week long, and I want to pass that angst and anxiety on to you. Um, this next part just makes me just hesitate and, and recognize of where I am in the world compared to a lot of other people in the world. Verses 52 and 53, it says this, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I don't know how nervous we should be. I just think we should pause and make sure we're clear as to who we are and who we're not in this passage. I wondered who will be brought down and who will be lifted up. And I think that both internationally in terms of nations, and I think about in our own cities and in parts of our own cities, who will be brought down and who will be lifted up? See, we all assume we're going to be lifted up. We're already up. <laughs> In the eyes of the whole world, we've all, we've been lifted up. <laughs> we have been lifted up. Again, I say this all because an author recently confirmed some suspicions I've had. If you grew up in North America, Western Europe, chances are you're weird. Right? You're just weird. And it's not automatic and it comes in degrees, but you're all to some degree a little bit weird if you're in this room, right? You're Western, you're educated, you're industrialized, you're rich, and you're democratic. That is not opposed to Republican. That is the idea that we elect our officials. We have, you know, nobody, nobody divinely rules over us. To whatever degree, this is our mindset. This is our cultural nuances. Our, our sense of right and wrong are deeply embedded in these ideas. 
And they are not the ideas that the rest of the world embeds their Bible in at all. We are radically different from the rest of the world. Here's my point. I mentioned earlier that there were many weird people who believe that we will be rich in heaven. But if you talk to the rest of the world, the weird people won't be allowed in heaven. They're the cause of all the problems. They're the ones, and the, the view of the rest of the world as they read this scripture, we're going to be brought down. Now, I, I, again, <laughs> take a step back. I, I don't know how, but this should make us pause. This should at least make us pause and ask ourselves, are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution? Because we can be both simultaneously, and we, we kind of almost have to be, as I'm about to explain to you. The fact that we're weird does affect how we view ourselves and how we view the rest of the world, and even how we view some of our neighbors in some parts of town. The Magnificat should make lots of powerful people nervous, even believing powerful people. And at the same time, if you've been shut out of a home or a church because somehow you became one of them, Right? The gospel is super good news. Jesus Christ has come to say, you're, you're accepted now. They didn't accept you, but I accept you. They shunned you, but I don't shun you. Here's how one theologian put it. Holiness will no longer be defined by position, office, and exclusion from fellowship, but by the infilling of the Spirit, humility, grace, and inclusion for all. So back to the peace candle. What will it take to realize peace on earth? We have some options. You can get rich and famous and finance the rest of the world. Boom, bam, baby, peace on earth. But I don't think that'll do it because money doesn't change our hearts. Right? You recognize that, right? We, we, can, we can alleviate a lot of issues with money, but I think we're only... We're only addressing, what is it, the symptoms, not the cause, right? We've got to go a little bit deeper to get to the cause, and that's the human heart. So, you can win the Nobel Prize, right? Get really brilliant and come up with a brilliant plan and peace on earth. Congratulations, that would be awesome. Or you can do what God has asked you to do knowing full well that you live in North America and you were raised in the culture of North America. He fully recognizes that we have and a lot of the rest of the world does not have. And he instituted a plan. Right? I know we get tired of that, that, that you know, $2 a day thing. Right? And I don't think we need to be defensive or feel guilty or anything like that. It is what it is. We're blessed to be born and raised in the USA. But the fact that, <laughs> that many of us are weird does affect, again, how we view each other and how we handle our money and how we do our banking. It, it does affect, and we need to be honest about that. So what was God's plan? It wasn't for us to feel guilty, right? That, that, that's not part of his plan. That's a false guilt. His plan was very simple. And this is the plan I put before you this morning. 
It's to support your local church. Support your local church and what they're doing to make a difference in the lives of the community that that local church is in. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, I meet at least once a week with somebody and I help them with rent. Um, a lot of you are tithers. We, I could not do this if it were not for you tithers. We love it when you all put a 20 spot in the offering on your way out. That's fantastic. That's a great start, but that doesn't finance people's rents who are down and out. It just doesn't. It can't. I want to challenge you, support the work that we're doing here in the local church, not only with your money, but maybe make a decision to become a regular tither. Maybe make a decision to tithe with your time, right? I will spend a certain amount of hours each week. I'll just go down to the church and ask what Jerry needs done. I'll help Josh. I'll do something. I, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that we can, I think, within God's plan, address the issue of incredible disparity in the world. And we're on the high end, and the rest of the world looks at us and like, boy, they, they hope we're not going to be in heaven. You've thought about that because they believe that. And again, the Western world, the industrialized world, we have brought many, many things to the world, but fantastic things in medicine and science, love all that. But there's always two sides of every coin, right? At what cost? I remember my teenagers... I would take them on a mission trip every year. It's called Project Yes, take them down to Mexico. And it always rocked, it, just, it would rock their world. They would come back and I would, I would arrange for them to do a morning testimony, right? On the Sunday, we'd get back on a Saturday and we'd drag them into church Sunday morning and drag them up front. They're all bleary-eyed and make them testify, right? Of what God had done to them and for them and through them in Mexico. And the very first time I did this, I realized I, I didn't plan very well. They, several of them got up and just reamed their parents. They stood up and they, I can't believe everything that we spend money on. And we just spent a week with people who have nothing. We waste, and they just, and I can see the parents. <laughs> so, and I, I don't think the idea was to make them feel guilty. I mean, that wasn't my goal. But I think the kids, they realized something. They caught a glimpse of what this world is about and, and how it has operated to the advantage of some and disadvantage of others. They saw that. They, even as teenagers, they clearly saw that, and it scared them. They didn't want to be that. And they, and they come back, <coughs> and, they, and they, they look in their closets and they think, wow, right? My lifestyle has sent destructive ripples around the world and, and it hits them for about two weeks, <laughs> right? That's kind of the way we are, right? We make a decision for God and it takes about five, 10 years to live into that decision. Same with the teenagers, right? Two weeks after Mexico, they're out buying a 250 pair, $200 pair of Nike shoes and they don't think a second thing about it. But they have that memory, and God is going to do something with that seed, right, in their hearts. Here's my suggestion. Don't wait for God to bring you low or send you away empty. I start doing it yourself. <laughs> what John Wesley say, I, I, I want to make as much as I can so I can give away as much as I can. And I believe the rumor has it he died pretty much penniless. I want to close 
There's a song we were singing earlier, Let There Be Peace and, and Let It Start With Me. Um, I, I have a favorite Christmas song, Little Drummer Boy. I've explained this before. I won't go into great detail right now. But in that, in that song that is not in the Bible, I'm well aware of that. There was no Little Drummer Boy, okay? But one of the, one of the lines in the, in, in the song, in the movie, Little Drummer Boy, um, he's a poor boy, and he's going to give what he has. He recognizes he's not going to change the world with his little drum, but he basically says to his Savior, what I have is yours. And if we can get our heads to that place, right, we don't have to feel guilty about living in North America. If we don't have to feel guilty that the rest of the world lives on $2 a day because we're doing something about it. God placed us in this nation at this time for a purpose. I believe that. And it's not for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the rest of the world. Bow your heads, Father. Father, make us pause. Make us hesitate. Open our eyes, Father, to the rest of the world and help us to recognize we are blessed, but we also might be a part of the problem. But it's not insurmountable. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, this can all be cleaned up. And it all starts with our hearts. Father, if you can get a heart transformed, then the entire earth can be transformed. So, Father, thank you for inviting us to be a part of this mission. Help us to do our part. Help us to be proud of the part that we play and not remain on the bench. Father, thank you for the opportunities that you give us to be better people. We don't give out of guilt. We, we give because it changes our hearts. Father, you transform us when we become generous. So, Father, that's my prayer today in a world that wants peace so badly and is going about it in so many wrong ways. Father, help us to remember that the heart of the issue is our hearts. And that heart can only be changed by your son. So we pray all these things in his name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.